Welcome to the CoinGecko Podcast. I'm your host, Bobby Young. Each week, we will be interviewing someone from the blockchain industry to learn more about this fast-moving cryptocurrency economy. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The CoinGecko Podcast is produced each week to help you stay ahead of the curve. Show notes can be found at podcast.coingecko.com. I highly encourage you to join our newsletter where we send out top news in the crypto industry every Monday to Friday. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter and Telegram at CoinGecko. Hello everybody, my name is Ben and for today's podcast session, I will be your host today as usual. Today we have a very special guest. His name is Stephen Young, co-founder of NFT5. Right. Stephen Young has been building and designing software for banks, financial institutions, and fintechs since 1998. He's actually a co-founder and chief product officer at CoinDirect, a cryptocurrency exchange and on-the-chain desk. Before that, he was actually a software architect, and head of design, and head of digital marketing at the largest private financial services company in Africa. And you know, now that you have a bit of background, we can get to the crux of today's topic, which is actually NFT5 and you know, a bunch of how we're going to dabble in the NFT space. I think a lot of our viewers might be interested in how you know, people value NFTs or what. And I think the best guy to do is actually Steven here today because NFT5 is a interesting topic. It's actually looking at setting up NFT loans and there's a lot of uh, interest in that area right now. So good to have you, Stephen. Welcome to the show. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I covered quite a bit, you know, I've rambled a bit. And I think just to kind of set the scene, right, you know, as an NFT expert, what would you say is your favorite NFT today? Yeah. So, yeah, maybe just to like add one thing to kind of that bio is, you know, so yeah, that was my sure. professional career. But as a, you know, in my private time, I've been taking photographs. So I'm an artist. I paint, mm-hmm. I draw. So basically, you know, since I was like 10 years old, I was into art and, and painting. So, you know, when NFTs came around, it, you know, really allowed me to take my professional career with like having a history in software development as well as finance and combine it with one of my private passions, which is art and like the creative process. So what Niftify is, is it really kind of combined Binds those two loves for me. And what we allow on Niftify is it allows people with NFTs to get a cryptocurrency loan using the NFT as collateral. And the way that it works is that Niftify is a peer-to-peer marketplace where people with NFTs can list their NFTs on our platform and people with capital can then make them offers to give them loans on those NFTs using them as collateral. So if I've got, say, a board Ape, I can list my board Ape, and then people who are interested in loading against board Apes can see that listing, and they can make me offers. And an offer consists of a loan period, loan principal, and a repayment amount. So, and so for example, I would get, say, a 20 Ether loan offer over 30 days. And I have to pay back 21 Ether. And I would then get multiple of these offers. And then I can, I'm under no obligation to accept any of them. So I can just look at whichever one I think I like the most. And if I do like it, I can accept that offer. And upon accepting that offer, the NFT is transferred into our smart contract to be held as escrow. So even Niftify, the team, has no access to that asset. It's only in the smart contract. So it's completely trustless. It's then held in that smart contract until the loan is repaid. 
And at the same time of that NFT being transferred into smart contract, the, the loan amount is transferred from the lender to the borrower. And that all happens in one transaction. And then the, the borrower has the loan period to repay the loan. We don't keep track of prices. There's no automatic liquidations. If you agreed on 30 days, you've got 30 days to repay the repayment amount. And then at the end of that period, either you repay before the loan expires, in which case the NFT is transferred directly back into your wallet and the repayment is transferred from your wallet into the lender's wallet, including the interest. And then Niftify will take a 5% fee of the interest as part of that transaction. And then if you don't repay on time, the lender can foreclose, in which case the NFT is transferred out of our smart contract into the lender's wallet and the borrower just uh, doesn't owe anything back anymore. So they basically forfeit their NFT uh, as repayment. Yeah, I mean, that's really cool, right? I think you pretty much covered the gist of what I wanted to sh I shared earlier. And I think what's really interesting is that this offers a lot of liquidity to everyone, yep. especially for NFT collectors. You know, there's always the running joke. We're all illiquid. And NFTs are a, that's a huge part of the issue, right? And I think platforms like Nifty5, if I'm not mistaken, I actually pronounced it NFT5, which now I'm learning is <laughs> yeah, not the correct way to no pronounce. <laughs> So yeah, Niftyfy, it's it's pretty cool, you know? See, this is quite interesting, right? So there, there's two angles I want to cover here first, which leads me to my earlier question. I actually earlier asked what your favorite NFT is, and the reason I asked oh, is yes. because... So the reason why I asked is because it's kind of close to what Niftyfy does, right? How does that lead to, you know, valuations and all sorts of things? We talk about Niftyfy is pretty much peer-to-peer -peer, and there's a strong tie with you know what your favorite NFT is because my next question would be is there future plans to for example become more like a bank like maker or compound where the protocol itself offers interest rates on NFTs you know there's also considerations coming yep. to that but yeah, I digress. Okay, so yeah, so sorry, let me get back to answering like what my favorite NFT is. So, <laughs> yeah. so I've got a couple. One of my favorites is actually I've got a founder CryptoKitty. So I've got CryptoKitty mm -hmm. number 72. Yep. And one of the reasons it's one of my favorites is, you know, like CryptoKitty is really like was one of the big catalyzing things that's starting this whole this whole space for a lot of reasons. Regardless of the fact that they're early, a lot of the people who are now building in the space are actually originally from the CryptoKitties team or they learned yes. about NFTs in the CryptoKitties world. So, so I just think it's like a really historical project. And the second reason I love that CryptoKitty is because I actually got it in a default very early on in Niftify. So, <laughs> so it's like both, I, I got it through the actual platform. Yeah. And then also I think it's super, it's a historical like a piece. And then my other favorite one is an autoglyph. So I managed yeah, to get that when autoglyph was still affordable. Now they're, <laughs> you know, crazy. And like the autoglyph is actually a really good example of like why you would want to use um, Niftify. So you know, so autoglyphs are, I mean, there's 512 of them. They're extremely rare. They're the yep. first fully on-chain generative project by Lava Labs, same people who did CryptoPunks and Mebit. It's super, super historic in the space too. Uh, and they're quite expensive now. I think the floor price I checked last week was like, I think 170 Ether now yeah, for, yeah, yeah. Um, for autoglyphs. But, but there's only 112 owners and mm -hmm. they hardly ever go on sale. So... I would never really want to get rid of that or that yeah. autoglyph because it's like owning a part of history mm -hmm. and, you know, like I have a really strong attachment to that piece. I mean, there's significant capital in there that I want to be able to put to use. And for a lot of people who are in the NFT space, 
they were buying these NFTs when they're worth, you know, you could get, get a lot of these things for less than one ether. I mean, exactly. You know, so a lot of these people now, a significant portion of their net worth is actually tied up in, in these NFTs. And now, so either they have to sell them and in which case, like there's a difference between NFTs and like a normal cryptocurrency, because if you sell some ether now, you can always buy more ether. If you sell the autoglyph now, you're not guaranteed of ever being able to buy one back. So that's kind of why I think people are really kind of interested in using these things. They want to keep the assets that they have an emotional attachment to them, um, or they are collectors who are actually building up a collection of art. But at the same time, there's significant capital locked up in here that they want to put to use in other parts of the ecosystem, or, you know, just, you know, something like you need putting a down payment on a house, you know, and you yeah, need to have and... It's cheaper to borrow and much less work to borrow on your autoglyph than it is to go to the bank to get a loan, for example. So that's, I think, part of the reason why you would want to use these things. And then your second question was around, you know, would we ever become peer to contract? Yes, like we're not opposed to it, but I think there are some significant challenges into this. And I think it overlaps quite a lot with like just the general problems that you see in the NFT space. And we can maybe get into that a little bit later, but you know, a few things that I can kind of name off the top of my head are these prices are very subjective, you know, yes. so it's difficult. You can't just look at full price because mm -hmm. you also need to look at, you know, what do you think the trajectory is going to be? What mm -hmm. do you think the team is going to do? What do you think the whole space is going to do? The other big problem is that when prices drop, liquidity dries up so just when you really need to sell it to kind of to because when are you most likely to get defaults when the prices drop when is the hardest to sell nfts when the prices drop because prices drop because liquidity dries up so liquidity yes. dries up first then the prices start dropping because people are now trying to sell these assets but nobody's buying so they keep dropping their prices. So it makes it quite difficult in those scenarios to kind of actually liquidate these assets into to, to make the loan whole. And then again, because the prices are subjective, these peer-to-contract models um, are, they work really well for floor assets. So, you know, if you have like a cheap floor NFT, it's easy to algorithmically say, okay, cool, well, we'll give you a 20% LTV on this floor asset. But if you have a rare high value NFT, to, to really understand the value of that asset often requires a little bit of like, you know, human kind of intervention in, in these pricing models. And the other big thing is, again, like I said, because people have emotional attachments to these assets and they're not like a, a fungible token where you can just always get another one, auto liquidations actually are quite risky for a lot of these asset owners because they don't necessarily want to be liquidated. You know, So even if the value drops below the current price, like for autoglyphs, for example, even if the floor price is a certain amount doesn't mean that I would be willing to sell my autoglyph at that price. So I might still want to repay my loan, even though the floor price of autoglyphs are below my actual value for the actual loan. So there's all of these things make it tricky to do these like peer to contract style models. I do think there's a place for them. LTV is loan to value. So basically, if it's worth $100,000, a 20% LTV will be $20,000 loan um, on the actual asset. So if you want low LTV loans on floor assets, that's probably quite an easy way to do that uh, because you can get that loan instantly. You don't have to wait for a, for to match somebody um, in a peer-to-peer -peer style. But having said all of that, we are releasing a version two soon and we've changed it from being a very loans focused to being a more general NFT agreement protocol. 
which means we can add these kind of peer-to-contract style loans relatively easily. And the other thing that we have is we've got a full API that allows people to see which assets are listed and make offers on them, which allows people to run automated strategies using a bot on top of our kind of underlying core contracts. One of the reasons we like this is because it allows other people to come up with new models on how to price these things and then have them compete against each other so the market can decide which one is the, is the best. And I actually think there's a place for multiple strategies in this because you know some people want a quick loan at low LTV. Other people don't care how long the loan takes to get, but they want to get the maximum capital out of their assets that they want. So, so I think there's different strategies that work for different people at different times. Yeah, I mean, that was a lot. It was very interesting, right? What you shared, there's a lot of plans for Niftify. And it's quite interesting where you talked about, you know, the fact that you're trying to build a V2. I will save that a little bit for later because I think that will yeah. round up our discussion nicely. I just want to kind of angle the conversation somewhere else, right? Because Niftify is actually built on the premise that NFTs are valuable, right? Yes. There's value behind our JPEGs. As an NFT collector, I get it. But... For a lot of people out there who are not familiar with NFTs or who just believe the hype or, or you know, it's all a scam, I kind of want to discuss that area, the topic of interest first. With that in mind, you know, one of the things we always talk about for NFTs, it's very interesting because digital technology and the blockchain allows us to see who were the owners before, who owns it now, right? Another term for that is actually called provenance or origin. And for NFT collectors, this is valuable and this technology is valuable. Mm -hmm. So could you share with the audience right, why is provenance important for NFTs? Yeah, so I think this is one of those things that people just kind of expect in the blockchain world. So maybe a good way to, to explain why it's important is to explain how big of a problem it is in the traditional art world. So if we wanted to do this exact same business in the traditional art world, there's like a few things that make it more complicated. First of all, we need to have like access to the assets and be able to kind of transfer it back and forth. But let's just leave that aside. What's, before we can make that actual loan, somebody needs to look at this, this artwork and see, is this actually really a Picasso or is it just somebody who made a copy of it and how do you know that and the process to determine that is a like error prone so I think there was really stat somewhere that I think upwards of 20% of artworks that are sold are oh. fakes and so you need to have a fully expert team you need to be able to get them access to the artwork they need to kind of do a full provenance check you need to check the certificates it becomes like a really cumbersome difficult process just to know that you're actually buying what you think you're buying. In the NFT space, you check the contract address. And if the contract address is the same as the contract that's minted like autoglyphs, then you know it's an autoglyph. You know, there's no way to kind of sell a fake asset in that way. There are other ways that this can become a problem, but you know, as long as you're buying like a well-known project where it's easy to determine what the original contract was, you can just check the contract address. So that's like a tick box that, you know, was just... It's just like a problem that just doesn't really exist in, in the NFT space. The other thing that, that happens is sometimes the artwork's value is actually increased by who owned it in the past. I'll give you a good example. So if you look at autoglyphs, I mean, like CryptoPunks, would Jay-Z's CryptoPunk 
if he ever sold it, would that be worth more than another punk with the same traits to somebody who's a big Jay-Z fan? Probably, right? You know, it's bragging rights. I bought Jay-Z's crypto exactly. punk from him. So you can actually have history of how something was owned and who owned it actually contribute to the value of the actual asset. Uh, and you're kind of seeing this, like, uh, especially with Bored Apes, actually. Uh, so Jimmy recently made a deal with like a big music company mm -hmm. where they're going to make a, a band called Kingship. Uh, mm -hmm. And the characters in the band are for Bored Apes that Jimmy owns. So if Kingship becomes a number one selling album, those NFTs are going to have significantly more value than another ape with exactly the same rarity traits. Yeah. So, so it gives people the ability to actually proactively do things to their assets to increase the value. And then you know for sure that this is that asset because, again, you know everybody who's owned it. You can check that this was actually the ape that was in kingship. You know, so it creates this whole new dimension that's very easy to trace and very easy to prove. All of this could be done in the traditional art world. It's just much more difficult to then track, is this actually that actual asset? Yeah, I think you talk a lot about the traditional world, right? But it actually also solves a existential problem in the digital world, right? For the longest time, digital artists could be copy-pasted, you know? Google image, yes. everything is very hard to trace in the internet. But yep. with blockchain, it also solves that. Yeah, right? exactly. So one of the things that's like a key characteristic of anything digital is that it is infinitely copyable. So right. you can have as many copies of this asset as you want. But what NFTs allow us to do now is as an artist, you can say, this is the original. And actually what you're really selling is it's more like you're selling the signature of the artist saying that this is the original one as opposed to the actual image. Obviously, there's a lot of other stuff you can do on top of that, but it's now created a new market for like a huge creative class that can now actually make a living selling their art instead of selling their skills to a commercial entity you know so before if you wanted to make a living as an illustrator you needed to get a job with nike you would you know work and get paid in hours for some image that you produce for them for a campaign you know you can't just follow your creative um, urges uh, you're working for somebody else you don't get any kind of subsequent kind of upside afterwards and now all of a sudden you have like a new, I heard somebody call it the birth of the, the creative middle class. Before you would either, you either be a rich artist or a starving artist. There was no in between. And now all of a sudden you can actually make a decent living. Maybe you're not going to become a multimillionaire. You know, obviously the upper, you know, the peoples of the world obviously yeah, kind yeah. of like end up there. But there's a whole group in the middle who can now sell art to their fan base directly on a global marketplace and actually earn a living doing what they find creatively stimulating as opposed to doing work for some commercial entity. Yeah, you know, basically what you've been sharing is that NFT solve a lot of existing issues and that's where its value comes from, right? And one of which is the value of provenance. But, you know, for a lot of people out there, they think that it's a bubble. Oh, it's going to crash, you know? Why are people throwing millions of dollars into this? It's money laundering, it's the void tax. You know, there's also uh, these kind of statements there, right? From your perspective as an NFT collector and NiftyFi as well, you know? Where else does the value of NFTs come from, aside from provenance? Yep. So I think what's important, like if you're starting to think about like how much is an actual NFT worth, is we need to realize that like NFT is a massively broad term. So really right. all an NFT is, is a unique digital thing. 
and that can be anything. You know, we're already seeing things like an NFT could be could represent an LP position in like Uniswap, for example. Yep. An NFT can represent a collectible. It can represent a one-of-one art. It could represent generative art, which is a lot of these generative art projects are like half a collectible, half artwork because it shares some of the traits of the collectibles in that there's more than one of them. You know, they have different like rarity factors, but they also have a visual artistic component to them. So I think it's very important to realize how you're yeah. trying to value this asset. For NFTs that actually just represent a financial position, you would do it exactly the same way that you evaluate other financial contracts. Well, what is the future expected cash flow? What do I expect the growth is going to be? You can do some maths and you kind of figure out like, what do I think this asset is going to be worth? For a collectible, you're looking at how big is the community? What have they got planned? Mm -hmm. What else do I get for owning this thing? So for Bored Apes, for example, if you were at NFT NYC, you could get into the yacht party. You could get into that, you know, that awesome concert that they had at the time. There's a tattoo parlor in, I think it's in Spain, that if you own a Bored Ape, they'll give you a free tattoo. So there's all of these things that are happening around the asset that like adds additional value kind of in the real world. So that's kind of on the collectible side. And in, in that side, you're also then looking at rarity. So different rarities have different values. And then when you're looking at art, a lot of the same things that give traditional art value will give NFT art value. So what is the reputation of the artist? Have they done other good work in the past? Is this a historically significant piece? Is it moving the space forward? What is the quality of the actual visual art? Is it good? So all of these things kind of kind of come in. And then to some degree, there's also just fashion. So, you know, if certain things become popular because famous people bought them, so that then gives them like a bump up again. So it's really difficult to determine, to say, give you a single answer. You really need to kind of go look at like each specific thing and each specific project, you know, add on top of that. So like Lava Labs is a great example. If you owned uh, Autoglyph or a CryptoPunk at one stage, you could mint a free MeBit, for example. So that's almost like NFT-based yield that you're getting for owning the actual assets. Other people are getting airdrops of governance tokens based on ownership of specific sets of NFTs. So it's a good example. So Botto yeah. is an AI-powered generative art project where if you own a certain number of NFTs from specific projects, you got free Botto tokens. And then those Botto tokens gives you um, the ability to vote on which of these generative artworks are good. So it gets really complicated, but yeah, so I think it really takes some work to kind of look at each individual project. And then, you know, this whole thing about it being a bubble and that everything's going to crash. Like, I do think we are in quite frothy prices. It's come off recently a little bit, like things have kind of dropped a bit, but I think it's similar to, to if you think about like, you know, the 99 kind of tech boom, right? So most of those companies don't exist anymore, but Google and Amazon were around back then, right? So some of them that were there like stayed and became mega valuable. And a lot of companies that were formed then were just too early. And there are now companies that are very valuable that do exactly what those companies did back then. So just because something, you know, because there's a bubble doesn't mean that the whole space is a bubble. It just might mean that certain pro like a lot of the projects have more value right now than they should. 
and it's a lot of these projects are completely undervalued right now compared to what they're going to be in the future. You know, if I knew what that would be, then you know, I would be a rich man, right? So it's it's really difficult to to tell. But course, I think I do think that the space has got a bright future. Certain projects that are alive now have a bright future, and other projects are just going to go disappear again. Yeah, what you're saying is there will be blue chips, and there will be those that. Just die, which is usually ninety nine percent or ninety percent. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, there's always this overarching advice that I always hear from the space in general, or crypto Twitter, and anyone knows the fact that oh, you know, when you buy an NFT, you should not think from an investments perspective. You should think about it from a creative perspective. Basically, your personal preference. Do you like this NFT? Why your thoughts? Does this necessarily correlate with value? Doesn't necessarily correlate with value. I do think certain people who really understand the space and like have like for example, our designer at Niftify, he's like he's a he collects traditional art. You know, his sister is a sculptor. A lot of his friends are artists. You know, so he's got a really good eye for what is good art. So so generally, what he likes tends to be the good stuff. Right. So I do think there's certain people who have the right kind of skill set to be able to determine what's valuable in specific projects and that they just like their taste just leans to those things that are more likely to be valuable. I mean, he doesn't always get it right either, but I think the reason that advice is told so often is because, you know, so there's a bunch of us who've kind of been in the space since, you know, like for two, three years, we kind of know what's going on. And then people come to us and say, what should I buy? And typically the things that I have a high confidence in that, they, that they're going to stick around are already very expensive. You know, like the Fidenzas and the, the Autoglyphs and the CryptoPunks and the Bored Apes, like they're likely to stick around. But, you know, like you're talking 50, 60 ETH a floor, which is way out of people's reach. So when the people then come and they ask people with a lot of experience in the space, which one of these projects that cost less than 0.5 Ether are going to be valuable in the future. And it's almost impossible to tell. And because of that fact, you should at least buy something that if it doesn't end up being valuable, at least you have a picture that you like that you want to put up on the wall, right? Like if my friends come to me and say, what NFT should I buy? I'm like, I don't know which ones are going to be valuable. So buy something you like. Yes. I don't think there's actually a real correlation between valuable or not. It's just that it's so hard to tell you what's going to be valuable five years from now. At least you should buy something that you like. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like, it's practical advice, right? Buy it and with the expectations that it goes to zero. So at least you're happy. Yes. <laughs> and then if it goes up, it's a bonus. Um, yeah. If not, you've got awesome art to stick on your wall. I think there's also something to be said, like, you know, that whole creative middle class, you know, so mm -hmm. I also buy lots of like one of one art from artists that I don't necessarily think are going to become super famous, mm -hmm. but I like their work. I want to see them produce more of it. I like supporting them. And then buying the artwork often allows you to form a relationship with them. So you kind of, you stay in touch. They tell you about their new things that they're doing. Like it allows people to kind of like become a patron of the arts for artists right. that they like and kind of create this creative middle class of people who can kind of earn a living being creative. And I think that's a worthy thing to, to be part of. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting because, you know, what I observe is quite different is that, you know, tokens is pump and dump schemes. And at least there's, I feel it's like it's more personal, right? There's the kind of relationships that you build between creators and buyers is quite authentic because there's always that, yes, I put my heart out into this, appreciate it. 
one example I can think of that you mentioned is the Seaham project, right? The Seahams. Essentially, the artist let out his first project, and then anyone who holds this project holds an NFT from my first project gets access to all my later projects. There was this kind yes. of a utility and relationship building that it's the great thing about NFTs. Yep. Completely agree. Yeah, it allows you to form like a an actual kind of human emotional connection that is just very difficult. You know, like you said with with ESC twenties, it is a financial instrument. So, mm-hmm. so yes, it creates incentive alignments, but the incentive alignments are around profit. How right. much money can I make? And if we all go up together and we all like push this project, then we're all going to make money together, which is, you know, I mean, I think it's super useful and it's like, you know, it, it allows us to do things and coordinate on a scale that was never possible before, but it's a very one dimensional kind of alignment. I mean, sometimes there's also a little bit of ideological, you know, so like, you know, Bitcoin maxis or Ethereum maxis, they also have like a worldview that they all kind of ascribe to. So I don't want to kind of make it purely a financial thing. Like I do think there's other things in there. But I think NFTs, like you said, allows smaller communities to form more emotional, personal connections where the connection is about the art. It's about the the feelings that are being produced in this community as opposed to purely a financial motive. But there's also a financial motive, right? Like if lots of people collect the project that you that you own, obviously that's also good for you. But it, it does have this other more human, like angle to it that you don't really see in ERC 20s i'm going to ask the next question is kind of a out of the ballpark question because we are taking a step back and looking at niftify again because niftify like you said you know offers nfts to be collateralized and you're setting up peer-to-peer platform right and for many people the alternative is to actually just fractionalize an nft could you share your thoughts and opinions on that you know what do you think of fractionalized? yes i think fractionalization has its place you know so if Somebody wants to just get exposure to the NFT market. You know, so like those people who come to me who are saying, which NFT should I buy as an investment? In that case, it's probably better for them to go buy a fraction of a board ape to get some exposure because they don't care about actually owning the ape. They don't want to, they don't want to use the ape to get into that yacht party, for example. They just want to get financial exposure to the upside on the actual market. So I think it's very useful in that way for people who don't actually care about the art, who aren't collectors, who just want to kind of get financial exposure, but can't afford to buy a blue chip. It gives them access to those blue chips. As a collector and like having spoken to a bunch of collectors, fractionalization isn't very appealing to them because they don't actually own the asset anymore. You can't use that ape to kind of get into special events. You, you're not going to be able to take that ape and then like, you know, give it a potion to make it a mutant ape. You know, you kind of cut out this utility and then it just becomes another financial asset. So what we say internally at Niftify is that you know, these kinds of things where you try to make unique assets not unique, you're taking the N out of NFTs, right? So you, you're making a non-fungible token fungible again. And then it's back into like a financial instrument that is kind of used for financial good, for financial things that can fit into the existing DeFi infrastructure. But you lose a lot of the specialness of, of the asset. But like I said, that doesn't mean that there isn't a place for it. You know, there's all different kinds of people who want to participate in in the market. And some of them just are investing. And that's also good, you know, because that brings in capital into the general market. I think there's a place. It's not something I would ever do with any of my value assets, though. Yeah, I just want to share 
actually fractionalization is not really a new concept, right? You know, even the traditional art has done something like this. I mean, they don't exactly cut up the picture and stuff like that, but they do have everyone getting a stake in a particular painting and spitting it out. And anyway, I just want to take a step back and look at, you know, what you mentioned, NFTs offer a lot of utility. They have the ability to solve a lot of different issues for artists and etc. But at the same time, you know, NFTs are still very new, right? We are still very early, you know, that's the famous quote. And with that, there are actually a lot of challenges that the industry still faces, right? For participants in the industry, you know, for collectors and creators. What would you say are the core issues today for collectors and creators? How should we address these issues? Yeah, I think one of the obvious ones is just the the insane gas tours that happen whenever a new like mint gets dropped and making like the people who want to buy these assets pay a higher price for it than they would have otherwise. So, so I think that's a big problem. It's a tricky problem to solve. Like I think reverse Dutch auctions are probably the better way to to kind of go about that. Like it does uh, help a little bit. You know, during this recent Adidas drop, I think seven million dollars was spent on. Sorry, it went at three thousand gray, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in 3,000 gray, which is nuts. And then in total, I think $7 million was spent on gas to, to mint those things. It's just absolutely crazy. And then just the gas out prices certain people out of the, the market for like purchasing those things. Like often you spend more on gas than you do on the actual uh, mint price on, on these things to just be able to kind of get in early. And who gets in early is the people who've got access to bots and infrastructure that allows them to kind of bid at scale. So then what happens is these bots come in, they buy up the assets and then they sell it on the secondary market, like essentially like siphoning off profits from the, the artist, but it's tricky. So I don't know that there's a solved problem for this yet. Some other issues is pricing, you know, so like, how do you actually know pricing and valuation? How do you know how much this asset is worth? It does make it quite tricky for people to know if they're getting like a good deal or not. There are some projects that are looking to, to um, solve this problem. I saw there's a recent one that launched that allows people to, they have to stake some, some ether value an asset and then the people who got closest to the average price get a reward and the people who are too far off get slashed yep. you know so that's a way to kind of get like a neutral appraisal of an asset and so i think that would be useful in the future there's other places like nft bank who built machine learning algorithms that allow them to to price these assets there's upshot who's doing quite like some novel crypto economic incentives to to help kind of price to these assets so there are people working on that problem, but I think it's always going to be quite tricky and there's always going to be this like super long tail of assets that just don't have enough trading history for quite a long time to be able to do these accurate pricing models for them. So I think that's tricky and I probably think that's going to remain an issue. I, I just think it's just inherent in the fact that, like I said earlier, NFTs are just unique digital things. You can imagine how somebody came to you and said, well, I've got a, like an AI that can determine the, the price of any random thing you show it in the real world. I mean, that's going to be quite a tricky problem to solve. You know, in the real world, at least there's like a limit to how many unique things you have because there's only so much matter that we can turn into unique right. things. In the digital world, like it can literally be infinite. Mm -hmm. So to have like a single way to price any random unique digital thing, I think is going to be a really tough ask. 
But I do think you'll probably have things that are good at pricing specific, you know, like blue chip assets or probably have, like you'll start developing a, like a good pricing model around those. So I think that's an outstanding problem. Gas fees in general, you know, so at the moment on Ethereum, even on Niftify, for example, it doesn't really make sense to take a loan on anything that's worth less than one Ether just because of the gas costs involved in actually doing these transactions. So, I mean, obviously some of these other chains make it simple, uh, cheaper, like Flow and Solana and so on. So I think that's also kind of like a problem that's being that's being worked on. What else is there? The other thing that, that's happening quite a lot at the moment is that I saw artists on Behance. So Behance, it's a website where traditional digital artists can just post their body of work so that people can find them so they can get jobs. But people are closing down their Behance accounts because people are stealing those images and then minting them as if it's their own. You know, so so there's quite a lot of IP theft going on where these people with expertise on the like they know how to mint, but they don't know how to make art. And then they go steal art from people who don't know how to mint and then mint it on like a contract and like pass it off as their own work. So, you know, the provenance bit only comes into place once it goes on chain. But what you put into the, the chain. Like there's no way to determine the actual provenance of where that came from before it was minted on a specific contract. So, so that's also a big problem. Yeah, you know that remind that's very reflective of uh, a case before. I I remember Pranksy buying a piece of NFT which he thought might be Banksy's. In turns out, wasn't yes. right. So there are a lot of considerations for the NFT world in general. You know, when it clashes the real world, how do you transfer? Real identities, how do you make sure that whoever mints it is verified it's the true creator? That's the general problem with crypto, really. You'll right. see all of the things where crypto is really taken off is where things are, can just stay in the blockchain and it's fully native. But as soon as you try to tie on-chain data to real-world things, that bridge of taking this real-world thing into a actual into the blockchain that's where the unsolved problem really is you know so like like they say in computer science garbage in garbage out right so you know it doesn't matter how good you are at tracing provenance if what you brought in in the first place was stolen from somewhere else yeah you know it's quite interesting today's topic you know we talk about nifty five but we are actually also exploring the forward thinking mm. issues with the energy industry as a whole like you mentioned there are a lot of fakes right in the future, you know, like you mentioned, we can always look at the contracts, but often people still get scammed with NFTs in general, you know. So how would you spot a fake or fraudulent NFT? Yeah, so I think there's two parts to that problem is like, how do you know, like if this was a, so for example, is this a fake CryptoPunk or is it a mm -hmm. fake board A? And with that, you know, buy from like a reputable source. So, you know, like if you're buying on OpenSea, check for the blue tick mark that they've got on there. You're normally safe if you do that. That's the one thing you can, if you do your research and you go find like the actual original project, ask them what the contract address was, check that that's the contract address that, you, that you're buying from. So in general, if you just take a few minutes to double check what you're buying for things that are already on chain, that's relatively easy. For this other problem that we talked about of, you know, is this actually the artist's real work that they minted? That's a harder problem to solve. I mean, you can do a Google image search, you know, take the actual, like the, the you know, right click and save the JPEG, put it into Google image search, see where that comes from and see if that's the same person. And if you, 
if you really want to double check, try contact the artist that that kind of originally posted this thing online and say, hey, are you actually minting on like this thing as an NFT? But that's a much, much more difficult thing to do. It's much harder to solve. So for me, for example, I've been following a bunch of artists on Instagram for a very long time, you know, like years back before NFTs were a thing. And a lot of them are now starting to mint their actual artwork. So, so if I'm buying something, often it's somebody who I already knew as an artist before they actually started minting things as NFTs. So in that way, I'm relatively safe because I had a pre-existing relationship with this person and I know that like this thing is coming from them. So so that's kind of one of my filters, but it, it's quite tricky. It's it's really hard. That's quite a hard problem to solve. I'm sure over time, like these minting platforms will probably start doing some of these checks. It is relatively easy to do an image search and look and see if there's duplicates. So I think over time, this should get better and there should be more tools to be able to see these things. But yeah, there's not an easy answer, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it boils down to the nature of crypto, right? We are decentralized. And with that, there's a lot of issues with enforcement, IP laws, et cetera, et cetera. Ultimately, it's, exactly. there's always an element of trust, right? An element of faith, regardless of whatever we buy. Yeah, and also, I think, yeah, I also think that the, in general, there's a different philosophy around buying things in these decentralized networks. And, you know, if you're buying from a centralized entity, the deal basically is I'm paying you a bunch of commission because I'm trusting you to do all my research for me. And your job is to keep me safe. I can just buy and sell, you know, without having to worry. If you want to buy in this decentralized world, it means you capture a lot more of the value and the artist captures a lot more value, but there's nobody there who's checking to make sure that everything is okay. So you have more responsibility to make your own good decisions. So it's, you know, it's the difference between going to a entertainment like park, you know, like Disneyland, where you get on a ride that feels dangerous, but it's not really dangerous and going to go climb a mountain. Like if you, you know, if you go to Disneyland, you can trust. If I sit where I'm supposed to sit and I put my seatbelt on, I will be safe. If you go climb a mountain, you need to make sure that you know what you're doing and that you know, like that you're not climbing outside of your skill levels and you know how to check the conditions and like the responsibility shifts to you to make sure that you're safe. Uh, yeah, I really like the analogy and I saw that that way. Uh, I was actually thinking, you know, it's the cost of the babysitter. Do you want to pay for the babysitter or not? <laughs> yes and they, yeah. and i think that is a valid case so like i think you know so coinbase you know they're releasing their nft platform which is going to be an decentralized entity OpenSea really is also an decentralized entity so i do actually think that they've got like a fair amount of responsibility to make sure that the things listed there are actually legit because they are a centralized entity that takes a huge cut of the fees like as part of this part of their platform so they should make sure that things are safe. And I think Coinbase will also be the same, you know, for something like Rarible, you know, which is just an open protocol. They don't really have all that much control about what gets put on there and what doesn't get put on there. So, so like, I think it's a different value proposition and you yep. need to go to the place where you think that fits your skill level and, you know, do your own research. You know, that's, that's how I see it. Yeah, and on that note, right, we always hear that advice, do your own research. And for the NFT space or in crypto in general, really, it's very intimidating. So for NFTs in particular, what kind of advice do you have for budding collectors? Yeah, so I think there's, again, depends what you're doing. Are you collecting art? 
Are you collecting collectibles? There's differences there. So for collectible, a a lot of what I'll be looking at is who the team that are building this, how healthy is their their Discord, what's happening in there, do all other people building stuff on top of the platform, do they have a proven track record of being able to execute? So, you know, like for Bored Apes, for example, it's clear that they're going to be doing cool stuff for people who own Bored Apes because they've done it and they're gonna they've got a good roadmap and like they keep adding more value and you can see that there's like momentum there and like a highly competent team that are like building like this ecosystem around the actual project if you're buying something from lava labs you know like they have a very different style to the board apes because you know lava labs is much more around putting something out there and not fiddling with it so so like you can almost think of like like lava labs as like the bitcoin of nfts and board apes as the ethereum so like board apes are they're doing new stuff they're trying to build things which is awesome which kind of creates new value but they could do something stupid that then like crashes the value of, of the actual asset whereas crypto punks they basically do nothing they do high quality like artwork you know they usually almost all of their projects are new and first to do something and then they just leave it and they don't fiddle with it so they're not like building more value on top of it but at least you know that they're not going to do something stupid that's going to like take take the value down so you need to understand that you need to understand the ethos of the thing you need to understand like who the people are behind it to look at like how healthy the ecosystem is, like what are their future plans? Do you believe that they're actually going to do those things? And it does what they do resonate with you, right? So if you're not the kind of person who wants to go to yacht parties and like go to exclusive concerts with like rap stars, then why do you own a board ape, right? Like maybe you want something else, you know? So you need to also kind of line up what you want with these actual assets. On the art side, again, it's, I think, a lot of the things that make art valuable in the traditional world is going to be what makes art valuable on the blockchain. So, and those are things like, is it a historically significant piece? You know, so when you, when you learn art history, you always learn about the first person to do a specific thing that started a new movement, right? They might not always be the best in the thing, but at least the first one will always valuable. And then also the best will be valuable, right? And then if you've got specific artists that like are part of multiple movements and they were like one of the like the like prominent figures in multiple movements, their artwork is also gonna like retain more value. There is a strong correlation between like how good something is as a visual or conceptual piece of art and the actual value. So like a good example of this is Deaf Beef. So he makes these NFTs that are the audio NFT fully programmed. Like the, the program that produces the audio is written in C and that's what's uploaded to the blockchain. So he was like one of the first people to do that. He was one of the first people to do audio NFTs. He does like he has these novel mechanisms in it where like each time the asset gets transferred, it degrades. So he's actually doing interesting new work that couldn't have existed if the blockchain didn't exist yeah. you know so so that means it's it's like actually a novel piece of work he's not just taking something you could have done without the blockchain and staking it on the blockchain like the blockchain is part of the actual artwork so those things become like become useful and interesting for like fidenza for example on art blocks so the fidenza project there were lots of art blocks projects before, and there's been lots of art blocks projects after. Like, why is Fidenza so valuable? 
each one of those Ferdenzas are visually very strong artworks on their own. You can see a Ferdenza is a Ferdenza, but they look completely different. But, you know, so like you get those ones that are super small and swirly, and then you get very monochrome big ones. So they all work visually. They all look like they're part of the same family, but they're all very distinct between each other. And the artist has a history of doing like generative art before art blocks was a thing, right? So all of those things add up to a super high quality project. Traditional collectors and museums and um, people who really are buying the art because they think it's a visually compelling like thing are all going to gravitate to those kinds of things, those assets. And they're going to stand out and over the long run, they're going to bubble up. So it's complicated and you need to yep. pick your niche and you can't apply the same rules to everything. Uh, but it is possible to at least have a better chance of guessing that something is going to be valuable in the future. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're always right. And, you know, sometimes your taste is not going to be something that becomes popular, you know. So even in the traditional art world, there is also, there are these taste makers, like who are the big collectors? which museums are buying it was this auctioned off at Sotheby's and you know all of those things are like a little bit of like extra marks of approval to kind of like push something towards um, becoming valuable over time right I think there was a lot of info to digest there but hopefully with everyone listening you know pick up some tips and tricks yeah I wish it was like an easy answer to say I mean like like the simple thing that everybody can do though is like look at the project on OpenSea how many owners are there? Like, what's the total traded volume? Look at the floor price compared to recent sales. Like, you know, because sometimes you'll have a floor price of 50 Ether, but something has never been sold for more than two. So, you know, you need to kind of look at those kind yeah. of things too. But all that tells you is like, what are the current market conditions? And sometimes that's to do with how good are these people at marketing stuff? It's also quite easy to do wash trades where, you know, like an artist can just buy something from himself from a new wallet that he set up to kind of create a high price. So, you know, you need to be careful, but at least that'll give you some kind of indication, you know, if something's done like a hundred ether of trading volume and like has gone has shown us like a strong kind of secondary market and a growth in prices you know that's also a way to look at it but you know i think you need to also layer on this kind of like is this a good piece of artwork and for that you need domain expertise there's not an easy way to just like guess those things you need to build yep. those skills internally go read some art books, look at traditional artwork, understand why those things were valuable and why they were considered good and try apply some of those skills to evaluating NFTs. Right, pulling back, right? We talked a lot about NFTs, moving back the conversation back to NFT5, right? So I guess we cover a little bit on why NFTs have value and you know some advice on how we can actually capture that opportunities in the space to capitalize on value. With that being said, this is why Nifty5 has a place. Nifify offers NFT collectors who, based on all the points that you raised before, big collectors who may want to become more liquid and collateralize their NFTs, they can take advantage of the platform. So, you know, this is kind of encapsulating why uh, platforms like Nifify are important for NFT collectors and industry as a whole. That being said, what are the plans for Nifify in the future? Yeah, so we are pushing out uh, version two of our protocol in Q1 next year. So just to give you a bit of context, when we launched Niftify, we started developing this in January 2020. 
at that stage, you could buy a CryptoPunk for less than one Ether. You could buy an Autoglyph for one and a half Ether. The Beeple sale hadn't happened. Board Apes didn't exist. No celebrities owned any NFTs. You know, so so when we launched, we really would, we knew all of the kind of NFT collector OGs. We knew that at least for some of them, this would be, be a useful project. But we didn't know when the rest of the world would kind of kick in. You know, like if if you spoke to anybody in NFTs at that time and you told them, you know, 18 months from now, you're going to have NFTs selling for $70 million. Uh, Jay-Z is going to have a CryptoPunk as his profile. OpenSea would have done $2, $3 billion in one month in, in volume. Nobody would have believed you. So really what we built was, a, it was really an MVP. It was the simplest contract we could make with the simplest UI. To, to kind of get the core value proposition of being able to get a loan on your actual NFT. Since then, obviously the market's really kind of like shown that this is an actual thing. We, we just crossed $35 million in loan volume and like our largest loan was $1.4 million on an autoglyph, you know, so, so there's clearly a market here. So what we're doing now with version two is we're taking this kind of very simple kind of single focused, single smart contract and kind of expanded that into be a modular system that allows us to do multiple types of NFT agreements across multiple NFT standards and like made this easily upgradable and governable by uh, a DAO, which is kind of our plan. We're going to progressively decentralize and go from, you know, we raised some VC funding now that's going to fund like our kind of internal development process. But over time, we want to kind of move this into an actual DAO. And the, the protocol now has become a more like generalized NFT agreement protocol, but the focus is still on loans in the kind of short term. So, so that's one thing that we've done in, in version two is kind of like lay the foundation for future growth and expansion of the actual protocol. But on top of that, we've also, you know, obviously we've had two and a half thousand loans. We've got a, a significant user base who are very engaged in helping us politely suggesting things that we should do to improve <laughs> improve the <laughs> protocol. At the moment, we only support ERC-721. Uh, we'll support ERC-1155s. Yep. So that's going to be good. The other thing, there's a new standard called ERC-998. And ERC-998 allows you to bundle up a number of NFTs in a new NFT. So it's essentially an NFT that can own other NFTs. Yep. So we've, we've implemented the ERC-998 standard, which will allow people to create bundles so that if you need a big loan and you don't have a single asset that's worth that much, you can bundle them together into a single NFT. And that NFT is then what you kind of use to actually do the loan on. So bundles are coming. Wow. At the moment, what we do is we've got very short loan periods, mainly just because we kind of, again, we don't know what the market's going to be like. We want to kind of limit people's risk. We knew we were going to do V2, so we didn't want to have long loans kind of stuck on the first version of the contract. But now with V2, we're going to have unlimited uh, loan periods. So you yeah. can decide how long you want to have the loan on. At the moment, the max is 90 days. Other thing we're doing is pro rata loans. So if you pay at the moment, you pay the full amount, no matter when you repay the loan, we now allow you to do a longer period loan. But then if you repay early, you only pay interest on the period during which you actually lent the actual asset, the actual money, sorry. Another big thing that we that we're adding in is loan extensions and renegotiations. So that allows you to, like, I, I thought I wanted a 30-day loan. I'm not actually going to make my repayment. You can renegotiate with the, with the lender 
and extend that loan period for potentially an additional fee. And you can also even do that after the loan has expired. So if you miss your repayments and you really don't want to lose this asset, you can contact the lender and say, I know I'm late, but you know, can we please extend this? Yeah. I'll pay you some extra to do that. So yeah. I think that's very important for people who've got an emotional connection with, with their assets to be able to get them back. So one thing that's kind of unique that in our platform, which kind of talks to like how NFTs can really be anything is when we do a loan in V1, say I'm the borrower and you're the lender, uh, you get an NFT that represents the loan. And whoever owns that NFT is the person that gets the repayment amount. So if you took out the loan and you need the capital back because you need to add something else, you can sell your promissory note to somebody else and then they take over the loan from you essentially. And in V2, we would also have a receipt. So me as a borrower, I would also get a receipt saying, hey, I owe this money and if I repay it, I'll get back this NFT. So now in V2, if I then see I'm not actually going to make this, I won't be able to repay it but my loan is for half the value of the, the, what the NFT is right now, I can sell my loan to somebody else, get back a little bit extra, and then they can take over the actual loan from me. So now the actual components of our loan are actual NFTs that can allow people to build other protocols on top of us. Yeah, I mean, a lot of exciting stuff, right? Anyone who's interested in NFTs, big collectors out there who are interested in becoming more liquid, you should definitely check NiftyFi out, especially in Q1 next year, right, for V2. Yep. And yep. I think that's about it for today's session. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on board. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your protocol, you know, and explaining why the NFT space, where the value comes from and how NiftyFi can contribute to the space. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you. All right, that wraps up the show. Thank you for listening to the CoinGecko podcast with Bobby. If you like our show and want to know more, check out podcast.coingecko.com or please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback, do drop us an email at hello at coingecko.com. Join us for more next week. See ya! This podcast is provided as part of the overall information on cryptocurrency contained on our website, is for your general information only, and does not, howsoever, constitute any endorsement, financial or investment advice, nor any solicitation or offer of securities or other financial instruments. CoinGecko and the podcast presenter makes no warranties, implied or expressed, of any kind in relation to this podcast, including, without limitation, the accuracy and updatedness of its content. All opinions and recommendations there in the podcast are based on the personal opinion of the presenter. Please conduct your own research and procure professional advice should you, at your own risk, decide to howsoever invest or trade in relation to the content contained in the podcast.